0: Warning, strong language is used in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. It was a Christmas dinner just like any other before. My family had gathered, and if you are familiar with Irish Catholic family gatherings, you know there's a quite a bit a lot of drinking going on. It was a large party, four uncles, two aunts, a couple cousins, my parents and I. And of course, my grandfather. He had fought in World War II, and for years we had heard him tell the same stories again and again. We loved them, and he definitely enjoyed telling them, even if they were embellished just a bit more with each telling. This Christmas was a bit different, and I can't tell you exactly why. But for whatever reason, a few of us thought it would be smart to press the record button when Grandpa started reminiscing. He told his famous story of the one time he fired a bazooka. He told a story about how a German prisoner knew about San Francisco, my grandfather's home, but not of Texas. We asked him what he thought about FDR. He was the president, he said. In those days, you respected him regardless of party. These are memories I cherish. He may not be with us anymore, but his stories are. Perhaps this is why I felt a personal connection to today's film. Perhaps this is why I very much wanted to cover Sam Mendez's, 1917. You're listening to Film Survey with J.G. Murphy. I am your host, J.G. Every week, we explore the history and themes of some of the greatest films in cinema history. But instead of randomly picking films week in and week out, we look at a certain theme and multiple films that are linked by that theme, sort of like a college course. Season two is entitled, We Shall Never Surrender, England's History on the Silver Screen. This show is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. For more content, please visit our website, www.tmkpictures.com and our YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. 1917 is the most recent film I've covered to date, premiering in December of 2019. This is honestly one of the films that made me want to start this podcast. I was floored when I saw this in theaters, not only by the story, but of course by Roger Deacon's wonderful technical achievement in cinematography. Sure, this is not the first film to look like one continuous shot, but we'll get to why I think this is the best example of that concept later. I had an emotional reaction when I first saw this film in theaters, as it struck a chord with me. This is a great story about Man versus Time, and features great performances from previously not widely known actors. It is a film that won numerous awards, including the Golden Globe for Best Drama, the BAFTA Award for Best Film, and it appears in AFI's Top 10 Films of the Year. Now, in the intro, I had mentioned that I felt a connection to 1917. Obviously, my grandfather did not fight in World War I. He wasn't even born yet. But Sam Mendez's grandfather did. So let's examine Sam Mendez and his grandfather Alfred to better understand where the story of 1917 comes from. Alfred Mendez was born on November 18th, 1897, the eldest of six children. Mendez was raised in Trinidad and educated in Port of Spain until 1912. He continued his studies in the United Kingdom and had hoped to attend university. Of course, those plans changed when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated on June 28th, 1914. Against his father's wishes, He enlisted in the military and served in the 1st Battalion King's Royal Rifle Brigade and fought for two years in Flanders, along the Belgian front. He was awarded a military medal for distinguishing himself on the battlefield. Due to his size, five foot four inches, he was routinely used to carry messages through no man's land as he could avoid easy detection among the six foot tall snow. However, towards the end of the war, Alfred would accidentally inhale poisonous gas And was sent back to Britain to recover. And until his dying day, he would continually wash his hands several times a day, a remnant of his experience in mud-drenched trenches. Mendez returned to Trinidad in 1919 and began writing in his spare time. In 1933, he arrived in New York City and joined literary salons, where he'd meet writers such as Richard Wright, County Colon, Claude McKay, William Soroyan, Benjamin Appel, Thomas Wolfe, Malcolm Lowry, and Ford Maddox Ford. Over his literary career, Mendez would publish 60 short stories in various magazines and journals in Trinidad, New York, London, and Paris. In 1965, Samuel Alexander Mendez was born to Alfred's son, Jameson Peter Mendez. Sam would recall his grandfather telling him stories about the war, after Alfred had reached his 70s. Sam's parents divorced when he was just three years old and settled with his mother in North London. He attended Magdalen College School where he met future collaborator, Tom Piper. Mendez had an interest in both film and theater and was accepted by Peterhouse Cambridge. There, he became a member of the Marlowe Society and directed several plays. He'd get his start professionally in the theater making his West End debut in 1989 with a production of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, starring Judi Dench. In 1993, Mendez staged the acclaimed revival of Kander and Ebb's Cabaret, starring Alan Cumming. The wildly popular show was transferred to Broadway, with Cumming reprising his role as the MC. In 1999, Mendez made the jump to film and debuted with American Beauty. Steven Spielberg liked what he saw in Cabaret and Mendez's production of Oliver and offered him the director's chair for the film. The film won the Academy Award for Best Picture, and Mendez became just the sixth director to earn Best Director for his feature film debut. Mendez would direct Road to Perdition, Jarhead, and Revolutionary Road, all of which were well-received. Then, in 2012, Mendez was employed to direct the 23rd James Bond film, Skyfall. Skyfall was a massive achievement. Many consider it to be one of the best Bond films. He then became the first filmmaker since John Glenn to direct two Bond films in a row when Spectre was released in 2015. That brings us to the present, and Mendez's most recent film, 1917. Mendez based 1917 on stories his grandfather Alfred told him when he was a child. Mendez stated, "'I felt an obligation to honor my grandfather. It's important to remember they were fighting for a free and unified Europe. Good to be reminded of that now.'" Mendez and Christy Wilson Cairns crafted a screenplay that they felt would tell a story they were proud of. "'I took a calculated gamble,' Mendez said and I'm pleased I did because of the energy you get just from driving forward in the narrative, in a war that was fundamentally about paralysis and stasis. Originally, Tom Holland was mentioned to be involved in the film, but ultimately, Mendez cast George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman as his two leads. Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin Firth, Mark Strong, and Richard Madden were all cast in supporting roles, but the biggest hire of them all was cinematographer Roger Deakins. Deakins has had a long and storied career in the film business. He has frequently collaborated with the Coen brothers, Denis Villanueva, as well as Mendez. He has been nominated for Academy Awards an astonishing 15 times, winning twice, on his 14th and 15th nominations, Villanueva's Blade Runner 2049, and our film of the hour, 1917 he has made a name for himself as one of the greatest and most influential cinematographers of all time. Many actors, including Tim Robbins, Josh Brolin, and Ryan Gosling, cited Deacon's involvement as reason why they decided to accept certain roles. In 2013, Deacon's was honored by Queen Elizabeth II as a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire for services to film. And we, the audience, are the ones who reap the most benefits from his artistic brilliance. Our story continues in a moment. And now, back to the show. 1917 is about two soldiers who are tasked with delivering a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking into a trap That the Germans have been planning for months. They must take a dangerous journey through no man's land, German bunkers, and German-occupied cities, and they have less than 24 hours. This film is obviously a story about man versus time, and every element within the film serves to raise the stakes of the conflict. Take, for example, the cinematography, As has been mentioned before, Roger Deakins shoots the film as if it is done in one long, continuous take. There are no visible cuts. Now, technically speaking, there are cuts. The trained eye knows where they are. But they hide the cuts so it appears as if the shot does not end. This presents a unique challenge. The field of vision is limited. Yes, the camera routinely goes from a wide shot to a close-up, but we do not get the luxury of seeing the entire scene. We only see what Deacons places the camera in front of. Now, how does this raise the stakes? Well, just like the characters who are taking a message through territory unknown, we do not know what's around them. It increases the tension as we feel like a German soldier could jump out at any moment and kill our heroes. This method is especially effective in two moments. When Lance Corporal Blake is killed, and when Lance Corporal Schofield is almost picked off by a German sniper. Blake, whose brother is to participate in the attack they are trying to stop, shows his good nature and tries to help a downed German pilot. He tells Schofield to get some water. The camera focuses on Schofield, leaving Blake and the pilot out of view. Suddenly, we hear the screams of Blake. As Schofield and the camera whip around, the pilot has stabbed Blake. Blake bleeds out and dies. Here, we are left to wonder what would have happened had they not stopped to help the enemy. We can't help but think you're losing time and they paid a hefty price for it. On the other hand, the sad irony of the scene is that Schofield gains a lot of time by being picked up by a British regiment passing by. Despite being surrounded by fellow allied forces, Schofield is alone. Left to wonder if he could have stopped Blake from dying had he seen the attack coming. This scene and this action were directly impacted from an earlier scene where Schofield almost dies inside an abandoned German bunker. As Schofield and Blake make their way through the bunker, a rat lands on a tripwire, causing the bunker to collapse. Schofield is buried under the rubble and dust. And when Blake recovers him, Schofield's eyes are covered in dust. He can't see anything. They escape, involving a daring jump across a cavern. But Schofield has to use all of his water and some of Blake's to get the dust out of his eyes. Schofield could be contemplating that, had that not happened, he would not have gone to the well, and Blake would still be alive. Later on, Schofield leaves the unit that picked him up. A downed bridge by a the city he's looking for, causes the unit to reroute by 30 miles, something Schofield cannot afford. So he decides to cross the river on his own and cut through the city in ruins. As he crosses the river through the ruins of the bridge, out of nowhere, a sniper rings out, nearly hitting Schofield in the head. Again, because of how Deakins places the camera, we cannot see the sniper. We weren't aware of its existence in the first place. There is a sense that if it isn't on the screen, it must not exist. And here, Deakins is using that to his advantage. It keeps us, the audience, on our toes. We are not allowed to feel safe, putting us right in the shoes of Schofield and increasing the tension of the film. The stakes are raised And we cannot help but worry that this new obstacle will either slow Schofield down too much, or worse, end his life. Now, those two examples were simple obstacles, but the cinematography helped make those obstacles as intense as they could be. And that's the sign of a great cinematographer. Even though Deakins is using a method that has been gimmicky before, his placement of the camera is so good that we forget it's supposed to be just one shot. That's where films like Birdman fail before it. Don't get me wrong, I love Birdman, and I think it's a really good film, but I get a feeling that you are hyper aware at all times that it's supposed to look like one continuous shot. There is a hint of, look how cool this is, rather than, how can this method better tell the story? I don't think the one continuous shot helps tell the story of Birdman, but it absolutely helps tell the story here in 1917. Now let's shift our focus to the main character, Schofield. Lance Corporal Schofield is the textbook definition of the reluctant hero. The reluctant hero is often described as, quote, an everyman forced into surreal situations which requires them to rise to the heroism. or as a person with special abilities who nonetheless evinces a desire to avoid using those abilities for the benefit of others. Examples of the reluctant hero are John McClane from Die Hard, Han Solo from Star Wars, and Eddie Valiant from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Some would even consider astronaut Neil Armstrong as a reluctant hero. Schofield has a medal from the Battle of the Somme, something Blake idolizes him for. Blake constantly asks him about the medal and where he keeps it, if he can see it. Schofield tells Blake he gave it away because it's just a bit of tin. Blake, on the other hand, is Schofield's foil. He is bright-eyed. He wants to be a hero. This task is his ticket to heroism and a medal. But for Schofield, he wonders why Blake even picked him to travel with him. Here, dramatic irony comes up again as Blake is the one who pays for it with his life. Schofield must carry on the mission, and it is here that he finds his purpose. He makes the mission less about his reluctance and more about saving his friend's brother. He couldn't keep his friend alive, so making sure his brother does not get killed in the ambush would be a small consolation. Later on, Schofield is met with an enticing opportunity to escape the war altogether. When hiding from the Germans in the ruined city of Akust, he happens upon a young woman and a baby that is not her own. Earlier in the film, Schofield stated that he came back to the war because home just wasn't the same. But here, a helpless child calls to him. He almost feels the need to stay and help the two, protect them from the war, and find safe passage. That spell is broken when the morning bells ring out. Again, time comes back and he doesn't have much time left. Much to the dismay of the woman, he must uphold his promise to Blake. This is where Schofield becomes more daring. He strangles a German soldier to death, and escapes the city by jumping over a waterfall. When he's washed ashore over dozens of dead bodies, he comes upon D Company, the last wave of the attack he is supposed to stop. Due to an overcrowded trench, Schofield throws reason out of the window. And decides to leave the trenches and run straight for Colonel Mackenzie's bunker through the battlefield. He dodges explosions and runs into a few British soldiers. It's his most heroic action, but it bore out of desperation. When he finally gets to Colonel Mackenzie and hands over the orders to stop the attack, Mackenzie tells him to fuck off. Here, we see a slight change in tone from Schofield. He may not have wanted thanks or praise. But the fact that Mackenzie refuses to praise him and instead tells him to get out of his face leaves Schofield wanting more. After all he had gone through, after 1,600 men almost marched to their grave, Schofield gets nothing. It's the harsh reminder of war and feels like a slap in the face. 1917 is an astounding achievement, and deserving of the awards and praise it has received. It follows a similar theme of some of the other great war films like The Best Years of Our Lives and Saving Private Ryan. Let's remember those who fought in the war, not just the war itself. It reminds me of my grandfather and his journey through Europe in 1944 and 1945. The heroes of the First World War are often forgotten. But this film, along with Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old, remind us to remember the sacrifices ordinary people made to fight for a free Europe. Next week, we will continue our exploration of English history through film with Tom Hooper's The King's Speech. Thank you for stopping by on this week's episode of Film Survey. This show is researched, written, and hosted by myself, J.G. Murphy, and is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. If you would like to view a transcript of this episode, it will be available on thefilmsurveypodcast.com. If you would like to share your thoughts with me on this film, make sure to follow at Filmsurveypodcast on Instagram, or you can shoot me a message at the J.G. Murphy on Twitter. You can also email me directly at jgmurphy at tmkpictures.com. It is possible I may share your thoughts with the rest of the community. I host another podcast, Obscurities of the Silver Screen, with my dear friend and colleague, Remy Gray. Episodes are available on Anchor or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to check out more of TMK's content, including Space Stuff, Look Mono Helmet, and Inner Idiot Child. All shows are free to watch on TMK's YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. Thank you for listening and I look forward to next week's discussion.